Hey guys, this episode of the Midwest Flyways podcast is brought to you by our friends at Better Fed Beef. Better Fed Beef is a direct consumer beef company producing specialized beef called Anya Beef. Certified Anya Beef comes from their fine-tuned program that basically makes this beef more tender and better. Um, Joey, my friend for my whole life, there's one thing that Joey has always hated. Legitimately, this is not a joke, and it's chicken. Like, the guy just does not like chicken. And, you know, this has set Joey and I on a quest to eat some really good steaks throughout our time. Which, is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. Look, this is a group of 17 Midwest farm families who raise the cattle specifically to be Anya beef. It is incredible beef. And you can get 20% off your first order right now with the code FLYWAYS. So go to betterfedbeef.com, use promo code FLYWAYS for 20% off. When you're not grilling duck, when you're not grilling goose, you're going to be grilling steak. Like, just think about it. It's steak. So, guys, go to betterfedbeef.com right now. And get yours today. Yeah. All the time. Okay. We, we've we done a number of podcasts where we've completely gotten like straight <clears throat> into the whole thing. Seven, ten minutes in. Easily. And like wrote down topics. We're fucking killing it. Right. And then I'm like, hey. um, Did you put the SD card I put in? the fucking SD card in. Yeah, it didn't But work. I didn't. Yeah, it didn't work. Yeah. and It's then not going to work without the SD card in. Joey gets pissed really like 10 minutes in and i'm rolling dude yeah i'm on one you're spitting one and yeah in the topic he's deep in the topic yeah yeah and then it's and then it's just over it's over now am i do i get really upset yeah yes really upset i would probably yeah because you can't like redo it it's not authentic then i mean not the same so like and when we do that i feel like we have to literally talk about different topics now easily or like the same topic but it has to be a totally different conversation now because it's it's over (laughs) <laughs> it's basically over uh well hey bienvenidos a la the midwest flyways podcast uh joey joey likes to open with bienvenidos um, like to speak a little spanish you know okay. what I, mean, Scott? Yep. I get it bilingual okay Bi- du- duolingual multilingual i'm like 70 percent fluent yeah, in spanish yeah. wow i'm like zero yeah that's it do you think it was the public school system's fault in rochester or? i think it's your last name <laughs> That's it. One hundred percent. Well, hey, on the podcast today, everybody does he need an introduction? But Scott Trinan from Mulkier. Uh, this is also Joey Vasallo and Cal Ness, your regular co-hosts. Wonderful. Thanks host for having host. me. Yeah, man. Thanks for being here, dude. Thanks for finally coming on after three years. It's been a little bit, hasn't yeah. it? You're bad at plans, though. It's okay, I would, I would say, say, you're old enough. You can I, say it. I would say that is a hundred percent true. Yeah. I'm bad at plans. I'm bad at having scheduled plans. I have a plan in my mind for each day, each hunt, whatever. Yep. And then that's a good plan. Yeah. When someone wants to Here's how good Scott is at plans. Me and Joey went to North Dakota last year mm-hmm. and we talked to Scott before we went, and for like three weeks, we were like, hey, do you want to come with us to North Dakota? And you were right. like, yeah, I think I'll probably go. Yeah. You're like, But, you know, I don't know for sure. Let's just yeah. wait and see. And then it's like three days before we're leaving, and I'm like, hey, we're going to go to North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to come? And you're like, maybe. I'll let you know. Right. So me and Joey leave. Right. And then I send a picture to Scott of us out in North Dakota, and he's like, can't believe you didn't fucking ask me to come. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, but we did ask you to come. Yeah. And he's like, but then Scott goes, you didn't let me know when you were going. Right. That was I'm like, we're little... leaving in like three days. But to you, you meant like call me day of leaving and be like, hey, we're on the road. You coming? Yeah. 
Well, it was it was uh, in all honesty, it was probably a little reverse psychology. Totally. Like it was covering. Like I wasn't gonna go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew. <laughs> I knew that. I, I just wanted. I just wanted to make you feel bad for a minute. Oh yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, yeah. I knew you weren't gonna come, but <laughs> yeah. and and that's all right. Yeah. Speaking of feel bad, I gave you a rod of twenty thirty jade. Yeah. What was that about a little <laughs> over a year ago? Well, it'd been a. It'd be a. It'd be one year. This weekend, actually, mm. this this weekend at yeah. Game Fair, you gave it to me. Yeah, I and, still have it. And you were excited about it. You're like, oh yeah, these well, will be the first Jade calls that I've ever turned. Yeah, can yeah. I have one for myself? And I said, absolutely. Yeah, here right. you go. Right now, where are they? Um, well, it's still in its cast acrylic rod form. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, four feet. We call it a work in progress. It's a work in progress. They're getting there. See now, hey, you. you can't rush art. You can't, you can't rush art. No, it's coming. Yeah, it's coming. You can't rush a masterpiece. Do right. not come. Do not yeah. come. I'm gonna yeah, come. That, I'm gonna come. Play the intro music. This is good. It's good. It's actually my goose calling in that video too. Is it really? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I knew it wasn't the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right, hey, I have a question. You're wearing the slow roll T-shirt. Yeah, I need to. I need to hear the story about like the slow roll and how you came up for the na- with the name for that. Because let me explain what it is. Well, I'm from Rochester. Yeah, a lot of big geese. Yep, where they rediscovered them, and we had a bathtub, Silver Lake, heated lake, power plant. They burned coal there, discharged the water, seven degrees warmer. So we had a ton of big giant geese and it didn't matter how cold it got, you know, it would get to negative 25, negative 30 and the lake would just steam. They were never leaving. You know, we wintered 30, 35,000 giants till the end of the year and all through the winter. Well, when it got really, really cold and you know, it was just that dead still cold where it was just cold, cold, cold. And, uh, you know, the air would basically crystallize when you exhaled it from your lungs, you know, type of deal. There was a guy down there that I guided with for a long time. He was one of the one of the first outfitters in town. His name was Steve Smith. We called him Schmitty. And he would live in a bus on the bottom of the hill. Um, so good. He would live in a bus on the bottom of the hill. And this was the original, like, I mean, this is an 18... Uh, like number 18 the bus was yellow school bus (laughs) yellow school bus didn't even didn't bother painting it well in the summers he would guide uh run launches out of the blue goose up on mille Lacs, and he'd come down and guide now he he had his own outfitter for probably 20 25 years in rochester guiding geese oh yeah Yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah he was good and you know him and his partner split ways well then he came and guided for dean yeah. Premier flight. Yeah. And that's who I guided with forever. So we would always hunt together. We would hunt Hamburger Hill, the historic Hamburger Hill down in Rochester, which was on the north side of town. And, you know, Schmitty, he lived in the bus. It was really, really nice inside, actually. You know, I remember going up there every morning, having a coffee with him. He had his whole decked out thing in there and whatnot. And we'd go up there and get the clients in and into the bus. No, into the pits. <laughs> okay. Into the pits. Right. No. Like, the bus. like right. as far as I know, I think maybe Kevin, Stever, which was his buddy, and me were like the only ones that ever actually went in the bus. Everybody's okay. kind of scared of the bus. But the bus sat at the bottom of the hill, which was like 250 yards away. And <laughs> in the morning, 
you know, it's cold. You get the clients in there, they'd get their crank and their heaters. And he was, he smoked a lot of cigarettes. He died of lung cancer. He would smoke three packs of Pall Malls a day. And he needed one match every morning. One match would do him for the rest of the day because he just lit the next one off the last right one. The oh one. yeah, and he would he would take the palm wall and he'd kind of grind on it and he'd you know do this little deal and he'd pull the filter out. Oh yeah, and so he'd smoke it with no filter. Oh yeah. Well, he'd be sitting there and he'd just grind his teeth and he was just grizzled. He looked like an he looked like dad's old work boots. Okay. You know, he was in the sun <laughs> or the wind every single day of his life. This and guy was. The old work boots. Yes, oh. he was. He was just alligator skin tough. Rode hard, put away wet. Yeah, oh, just, yeah. rode hard and put I away don't wet. think he was ever put away wet. He just rode hard. <laughs> just rode hard. And uh, just tough as nails. You know, I, I hunted with a guy in just some brutal conditions back when we used to have real winters. And I never seen him wear gloves. And he never turned a heater on in his pit because he didn't want to get accustomed to it. Old steel hands. Yeah, and he'd have duct tape on his hands. Oh. I mean, they were all duct tape because they were cracked. His skin would crack. It was like so dry from being, yeah, I mean, just a, um, but a great guy, great goose hunter, old school, blew blew a guide's best, made one note on it, and it was just this ball. It was just this ball, just a, and geese just absolutely loved it. It was the weirdest most unique original sound I think I've ever heard a goose caller make, and the geese just loved it. And sometimes when he got excited, it'd be like, bah, 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 bah. and it was loud. Mm. And anyways, he would sit up there in the pit, going back to the where the slow roll came. And you know, one day he was sitting up there and he's just grinding on that Paul Mall. And I looked at him, <laughs> I go, "What do you think, Schmidt?" He goes, "I like it. Mm. it it's going to be a slow roll." And that's just where the geese come out slow. Everything moves slow. It's so cold. You know, they're not in a hurry. You're not in a hurry. And he just, uh, from that point on, that was like one of the first times I guided with him. And from that point on, whenever I showed up, I go, Schmidt, is he going to be a slow roll? And he goes, I think it's going to be a slow roll. And we would just, we'd tear into him those days. I mean, it was so cool. So it's always, you know, we call it a slow roll and home of the slow roll and, that's yeah. It came from Steve Schmitty Smith, who passed away in two thousand, uh, two thousand twelve from lung cancer. How old was he? I think at the time he was fifty eight. Oh, damn. looked like he was going on about one hundred and thirty six. <laughs> I mean he he was he was rugged, but he was road hard. Yes, he was he was he was a gr- love black and white shadows. Just had a real knack for just putting birds on the ground. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just didn't do it. He smoked a cigarette when he was calling. Oh, yeah. Smoked a cigarette <laughs> yeah, when yeah. he was calling. Was it in, like, the side of his mouth? In the or? side of his mouth, ran that flute like this, would go back and forth and smoke a cigarette at the same time. Whenever he paused, you'd see him inhale the cigarette, and the smoke would come out the end of the goose call. That's <laughs> so amazing. Yeah, he was just, I mean, just an original. How can you, yeah, so wore Carhartts, um, you know, just, just one of those, old school OG goose guys that yeah. was cool to be around, but he was a really, really good goose hunter that you just, you know, none of his skills like on a call or he didn't own any de- I mean, it was just, he was just a good goose hunter. Yeah. You know, he, just, he didn't own any decoys. Well, after the guide service, no, no, okay. probably not. No, sold I think he sold the them to Dean. Yeah. He used to run folding feathers back in the day, which mm. was, uh, which is a very, very, uh, 
very good guide service in Rochester in the you know the eighties and nineties. Yeah. So it's funny you say that he probably sold them to Dean because I've hunted over Dean's decoys. Yeah. yeah. And I think those are from the seventies and eighties. Well, Bigfoots came out in the eighty four. And I can guarantee you there's a lot of them from 84 to 90, you know, <laughs> yeah. we call them Lego pieces now. Oh yeah. When you get them out of the pits, it's like, okay, you know, they're in five different pieces sure. and Lego sure. pieces. So yeah. That's so funny, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one of my questions for you and this kind of rolls really well into it was, uh, who are some of the guys that really like taught you some of the stuff that got you super invested in waterfall? And like, what did you learn from each of those different people? Cause I think, but also like really taught you something where you're like, Oh wow. Yeah. Or even like a unique thing. You know, there, there were several of them. Um, my hunting started out. I grew up on a dairy farm West of town about 10 miles. So until I could drive all my hunting was pretty much around my hometown, yeah. which, you know, we would hold anywhere from 200 geese in the early season up to about 4,000, uh, you know, when the migration hit its peak. So, you know, a lot of that was learned trial and error off of that way. But when I went into Rochester and uh, started, you know, helping out guiding and guiding for these people, you know, they're uh, Schmitty, Schmitty, um, you know, flat fields versus hilly fields. Yeah. Uh, just the amount of decoys you use. Um Guy by the name of Dave Gertz. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah. We met Dave. At yeah, Dave Gertz. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, goose hunter. Um, just real had a real savvy. You know, it was. I remember one day we were working some geese, or we were we were out hunting, and we nothing good was happening. Sure, they were just coming over. They just weren't doing anything. And he goes, "All right, all right, we're gonna pull out this next one." And he goes, "Just don't say anything until I say anything." And he meant on the call. Yeah. And these geese were coming out quiet. You know, it was just one of those days they were coming out quiet. And these geese were coming out of town. And he goes, don't say anything. Don't say anything. And these geese were quiet. They weren't saying anything. These geese got over the top of us. There's probably a 25, 30 pack. Yeah. And one of the geese in the flock just goes. <laughs> and Dave goes. <laughs> and I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. 25 of them just just locked up just locked up and oh my god swing in we ended up going from zero to limit like just by using that little thing yeah where yeah it gets late in the year they're not saying anything wait until they say something first mimic whatever they say and that's something i still use today you oh, know yeah. so um yeah schmitty uh dave gertz um uh, Dave Reese, Steve Reese, I should say, Steve Reese was down in Rochester. He was a kind of a concern, uh, concealment guru on the pits and stuff, just taking what you have, you think it looks better. And he would pull up and be like, they're picking you apart. Yeah. This needs to be better. So, you know, a lot has changed in goose hunting since that time, but those were all guys where you just, you just pick things, you just pick things and you pick things. And it was real, they were real savvy, you know, yeah, they yeah. weren't like, uh, you know, I wasn't hunting with a 23-year-old uh, kid when I was 17. I was hunting with a 35, 40-year-old that's been doing it for 15, 20 years, right. you know. So you just pick up stuff like that. So. so when you talk about those people that just like like Dave Gertz, mm -hmm. where he just like knows to mimic them at a certain point, yeah, right? How does someone get to that point? A lot of days spent in the field. Yeah. A lot of days spent in the field. A lot field. of days spent in the field. You know, when you're out there and nothing's working, you try stuff. Yeah. Um, and that just comes with time. You know, there, 
you know, Dave guided, he guided in uh, North Dakota, he guided in Rochester, and he guided down at Stanfield and Webfoot down in Texas. And a lot of the connection was that was down in Texas was from Rochester. You know, Johnny Reichardt, Josh Mason, uh, Dave, Steve, Clarence. I mean, all those guys went down to Texas and guided yeah, yeah. too. So they were pulling back some of that stuff that they would use on lessers and little geese and kind of using it and whatnot. So, you know, how do you get to that point? You just got to try stuff. You got to sure. try stuff and it just comes with, you know, you try a little something that works and you think you can go a little further and try something more. So it's just days spent in the field. You know, that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. What what about goose hunting? Because you said goose hunting has changed so much. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about like what are the different things that you see that have changed drastically or that have really made an impact? And well, the big thing with us down in Rochester is we lost the lake. Yeah, we lost Silver Lake on January first, two thousand nine, and you know I'll never forget that day too when they specific sh- too when specific they shut the well sure. <laughs> when you got a big golden hot tub down Ain't there that just laughing, you know yeah it, it almost felt like it yeah. Uh, those giants, they came back because it was a very, you know, it was a very, I want to say it was a, like now you shoot a gray eyebrow and you're like, oh, that's cool. You know, I remember times in the 90s where if, you know, in the two bird limit, you'd shoot your, you know, 20, 24, 28 geese and 24, 28 of them all had a gray eyebrow. They all yeah. weigh 12 and a half pounds. Are the, um, does, is that a genetic mutation or is that because they're all that old? Is no, that, like that, a, that is just a trait of the giant Canada goose. You know, a hook on the cheek patch, uh, column size, the gray eyebrow, you know, stuff like that. That's oh. just all. Uh, so, um, so technically it is a genetic thing, but it's genetic only to the giant. Yes. Well, no, all birds can have it, but the giants just had it like all more. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in 2000, January in 2009, they closed down the lake and the geese came back for one year, but then the lake obviously froze. They moved yeah. down to the river system and then the big geese were just, they did not come back in 2010. Yeah. Um, 2010, 11, 12 were very, very dismal years in Rochester. Yeah. We're like, we went from, you know, at peak holding 55, 60, 65,000 big geese wintering 30, 35 to like, we have... 17,000 geese here that just cut in half, just cut in half. And the size got cut in half, two of them. And so we went through a real dry spell. And then in November of 2013, uh, November 11th, there was a 12 inch snowstorm. Writes them all down. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) 12 inch today, honey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was deer hunting. I remember 12 inch (laughs) snowstorm that literally hit the whole state of Minnesota. Yeah. Except for like from Zombroda down, like okay. the little corner, like Mankato had a, yeah. like wrapped around Rochester. And I, of all my years of hunting, I've never seen a migration come into Rochester like that. Yeah. I mean, Lacaparo cleared out, Fergus cleared out. I mean, every. What year is this, did you say? 2013. Okay. And it was absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, no, I'm sorry. It's 2014. Um, it was absolutely insane. And we went from like nothing to like having, I mean, there was probably 60, 70, 75,000 geese there. I oh mean, my we God. were just starting to bang every yeah. single day. Well, what that did, I think, is it got a lot of those geese that were sitting in areas that, you know, like La Caparo. They haven't had that many geese since then or whatever. And different areas, it got them into Rochester. And if you've ever been to Rochester, it's a great place for a Canada goose. 
yeah. soccer fields, baseball fields, big refuge, feed fields that are safe. So I think once we got them there, they started coming back. Now, what came back and what we're hunting today is more of an interior bird. You know, we're not just in, in Fergus is the same way in other parts of the state. The whole state of Minnesota is not seeing as many big geese as we used to. So when, cause I've heard you talk about this in your seminars and shit where you're saying like the EPP birds and all these different subspecies or areas of birds where they culminate. Sure. They're starting to breed themselves smaller. Well, I think over time. Is that what you mean by interior birds? Are there like interior part of Canada coming Well, down? an interior is a classification of a, a, a subspecies of Canada goose. Okay. Um, primarily six to 10 pounds, six to nine pounds. You know, you've heard of Churchill yep. um, geese. You know, those are all interiors. And I think over time, you know, if you look at the reports and the studies and stuff like that and the you know, in the 1880s, Rochester had geese on the spring-fed systems of the Root River and Zumbro and stuff like this. These were big geese. You know, America, Minnesota, upper Midwest, it was rugged. There was a lot of farmers, dairy farmers. There wasn't as many people. You know, when, when you got more of a rural setting or a rugged environment for wildlife, bigger animals grow. Yeah. When they become more inundated with domesticated human populations and stuff, a smaller species thrives. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's happened to the Canada goose over the time. Um, that's not saying there isn't big geese out there. We're just not seeing as many of them here in Minnesota. Right. Um, I don't think that. I don't necessarily think that. You know, the migration is changing or anything like that. I just don't think there's as many big geese in our flyway. In our flyway primarily comes from the interlake population of Manitoba is I just don't think there's as many big true geese as, as there once was. And I think that's just a product of their environment and how they live and how they survive. You know, I mean, back in, you know, the seventies and stuff, they would say a Canada goose would lose 18 to 20% of its body weight during the winter. Now they're losing 28 to 33% of their body weight. Yeah. They're just, not, right. they're just survivalists. They'll eat grass instead of grain. They'll just, you know, um, so we're just, how that's changed is we're hunting a different goose and we're putting a lot more pressure on them. You know, 2000, we had 130,000 waterfall hunters in the state of Minnesota. Now we're hovering around 90,000, but the people that do hunt are hunting yeah. more often, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, everybody can work on their phones, you know, they can make it up later. They can do this, um, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, people just hunt, they scout, they chase axes. I mean, there's just, there's just a lot of pressure on today's geese, um, in this, in particular in the state of Minnesota. And that's just, that's just changed the goose. So that's what I mean by it being different than yeah. what it was back then. Is it like a culture shift that has pushed people to be like more intense goose hunters? Because, you know, we've talked about this with so many people and everybody's like, well, yeah, there's less hunters, but how many times now is it that you go to your spot and somebody's at your spot? Oh yeah. You know, or like if you're a public hunter or even trying to get access to fields, there's like, you might even know. And Stan Guzzi was saying like, it's crazy to even think that you would know like four people that wanted permission on the same field. Right. You know, like back oh, in the day, it was either like day. you had permission or nobody hunted it. You yeah, know what I mean? It was just know, like, I don't know exactly. And I kind of grew up doing it. I mean, um, I think it's the information of today. Is that it? Resources or like, I think, I think it's, you know, whenever you see a shift in anything, it's, it's, it's a pie. Um, you know, there's a lot of pieces in that pie. What makes up a bigger piece? What makes up a smaller piece? It all adds to it, to the whole end, whole pie as a whole. But I think, I think the information base, I think, uh, um, honestly, what I really think 
you know, contributed a large portion of it is people figuring out that they can hunt traffic. You know, mm. they don't have to hunt the X to be yeah. able to kill geese. Um, so it makes it more available. Makes it more available. Like, like if these geese were sitting in Farmer Joe's field for seven days, nobody hunted them because they couldn't get permission. Well, guess what? We can hunt them in the field right in front of it and kill them. Yeah. So I think, I think you know, if I have to look at Minnesota hunters in general and goose hunters in general, what has changed that is the fact that you can hunt geese trafficking them. Yeah. You know, you don't have to hunt on the X. You don't have to worry about being on the X. And, you know, that's something in Rochester. I mean, I've hunted Rochester for 20. This will be my 20, 28th year, and I've hunted the X five times. Yeah. It's all traffic hunting. I mean, it's that, always that has traffic. to be an exaggeration. Five times in 20 years. In one of our pitted fields, it might be four. Yeah. In one <laughs> of our pitted fields. Double down. I mean, maybe double down. He says maybe the North Field twice, which were absolutely bananas. Oh, stick to it, man. Five. I'm trying to get to five. Uh, You're like counting them in your head right oh, now. I can remember them all because when you have geese feeding in your field in Rochester, yeah, like in one of your pitted fields, yeah, that's unheard of. Yeah, I'm gonna say seven just to be safe, but I know I'm under. Yeah, I'll ask Dean tomorrow. That's so crazy even just to, like, think about that. Right. Fucking 30 years almost, and you're never hunting an X. No, it's all so, traffic. And here's the thing. So th this is an interesting piece of it. Do you feel like back then there was, like, guys that really hunted that knew that? and that Because obviously you were doing that. You are hunting traffic. Now it's just a widespread thing, or what's that? Well, it's, it's, you know, everybody in Rochester knew that. That's what they were hunting. They were just, you know, that's the way that style went. But, um, um. Yeah, I don't know what, you know, maybe changed that. I think, I think, like Joey said, the information base. Yeah. Uh, I don't think people really in the 90s and maybe early 2000s rest, registered traffic versus X. Yeah. You know, I don't think that was a topic, <laughs> right. you know. Right. And I'll, I'll never forget the day that I just wanted to just headlock Mike Benjamin in the bullpen at Game Fair one time is we were sitting there and uh, this is when Joe – I'm going to say it was probably seven years ago. Okay. We were sitting in the bullpen at game fair and Joe was talking to Joe Hines. Yeah. And he was talking about hunting and stuff like this. And he was talking about something he couldn't could get out of the ax. So they didn't hunt or whatever. And Mike Benjamin goes, well, just do it. Just do what we do in Rochester. And he was living down in Rochester and you know, we were running our instructional <laughs> hunts. Yeah. And Joe's like, well, what's that? And he goes, put out as many decoys as you can find and call as hard as you can. And I was like, no, <laughs> because we were burning them pretty good, you know, on that yeah. deal, you know, because it wasn't, it, it, this isn't something that we created at all or anything yeah, like yeah. that. It just wasn't really out there as much, but we we're just using massive, massive decoy spreads and had four or five callers. And it was very new to the geese at that time. Yeah. And it was extremely effective. Yeah. Extremely effective. So just to go back to your point of what kind of changed it and stuff like that, I would say people figuring out how to that they could hunt traffic, yeah, you know, and that's something that, you know, Southern Illinois, Eastern shore, these guys hunted the same field. It's not something that's new or that anybody in Minnesota or Rochester or anything created. I mean, these guys were doing it since, you know, the sixties and seventies on the Eastern shore and stuff. It's just something that I think that was new in this area for the most part. No like, question. Cause no. you've, you've hunted everywhere. I haven't hunted everywhere, I mean, but, but I've but hunted most, a lot of places. Most yeah. places. Yeah. 
yeah. and why in Rochester so hard because of all the pressure and you know I don't even geese I don't in our know, flyway I, or, I don't even know if it's that um, or you just you just like to think that no you're a badass motherfucker no no I don't saying. say that because I wish it was the other way around because it <laughs> used to be one of the best places yeah um, um, it's it's really weird because you can travel twenty miles west of Rochester and they act totally different. You're right. like, how is that really? so much different? You know, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's some, it's just the weirdest. You know what? Yeah. I think honestly, it's because they're communicating to each other <laughs> and they follow the I residents. They follow the residents. So I remember, I remember talking to a guy today up at game fair. Who was I talking to? It was an outfitter and they couldn't not believe that our geese did not fly on a sunny day. And I was like, our geese start, stopped flying on sunny days in 2001 because i remember the con i know i throw out a lot of dates but I, this is all i do so i remember bill bartz clarence reese we met back up and we're like did you see a goose today they're like no did you i was like no and they stopped flying on sunny days that was it dead ass we do not see that was 21 years ago that's insane you know so um it's just the, 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 the I, I don't know why they're so nasty. I can't, you know, it's not like we have that much pressure than anywhere else. It's, uh, I don't know. They're just really, really nasty. And I see the trends uh, spreading out. You know, I think when I was up in uh, Fergus Falls two years ago, I was like, this feels like 2013 or 14 Rochester. You know, yeah. you can you can see the virus spreading sure so sure. to speak you know yeah. and it's like yeah you can still get into these but i see where this is going to be in five or six years you yeah. know and, and it look gets at us worse. now and it gets worse you know they're yeah. bad yeah they're bad so um i i know a lot of really good goose hunters that came to rochester that have never came back and verbally <laughs> will say i'm never going back there really oh yeah a lot of people that make their living in the industry yeah. they're like i'm not going back there mm. i don't blame them I mean, take this in for instance. Six years ago, five years ago, we were sitting in this beautiful, beautiful golden-picked cornfield high on a hill. Had a good flight over us. Thousands of birds coming over the field. Thousands and thousands of birds coming over the field. And I'm not going to BS you on how many decoys we had out. It was pushing 2K of full bodies. <laughs> Two With, I'll say... 2,000 full bodies. Not That's not shells, Scott. I'm going to say th there was 1,000 sleeper shells in there and 1,000, almost 1,000 full bodies. Oh my that's God. no BS. And we had me, Mike Benjamin, Craig Rosenau, Robbie Brink, um, one other guy. So six phenomenal callers. Six phenomenal callers, unbelievable hide. And we were banging our heads on the pit because we had headaches of calling and trying and just to get a bird to break off the back. You know, is that given day? Oh, my God. But that's, that's pretty nasty when a Canada goose doesn't like that. And yeah. you're hunting traffic, and they're going right over it. Yeah. You know? So I just I've, – I've been to a lot of places, like you said, Joey, and everywhere, everywhere gets tough. But, uh, you know – I, I, I really enjoy hunting other places. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? right. So, yeah. For sure. I don't want to say it's like 1997 Rochester when you go somewhere <laughs> else, but it's, uh, 
Stop it with the fucking dates. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much. Yeah. But no, what well, to talk on your point, I had pretty much grown up hunting in Minnesota my entire life. Yeah. Then when we started Midwest Flyways, then we started traveling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, you guys have to see it. What's that? Oh, the difference? Yeah. Well, yeah. I was just going to say, I did a little freelance trip with two buddies that are like, okay, on a goose call. And we were targeting mallards. And we go down to the spot in Nebraska and there's a bunch of geese flying around. I'm like, oh, wow, we need to put out some silhouettes on the sandbar, right? Right. And we start putting out the silhouettes like as they're flying all over the place. And I start hitting a quick spit, and I've never seen a goose turn oh, so man. hard in my entire life. That All those geese that day acted like they had never heard a quick spit before. Right. They probably and have. it was just like, whoa. Yeah. Like, this is so different yeah. <laughs> than Minnesota. Yeah. You could do like a cool like moan cluck sequence. Oh, yeah. Like you cluck, I moan. And it's Kill just like, and they would just, yeah. like, no questions, lock up. And you were killed our limit. Yeah. It was just so fast. They started right. rolling eight minutes later. We're just hammering them. Right. It was yeah. so cool. It's but, awesome. like, that wouldn't happen no. in most days in Minnesota. You know? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> you know, the state breeds a lot of good goose hunters, breeds a lot of good goose callers. Yep. You know, like, we had that state contest down in uh rochester two weekends ago or whatever and you know there was 14 or 15 callers in it 14 or 15 really good callers and i'm sitting there thinking there could be 45 to 50 callers like this there's a lot of good field callers in minnesota that just don't get up on stage you know um so and there's just there's just a lot of good hunters yeah like joey and there's just a lot of good hunters that uh you know it's (laughs) you got to figure it out you know, so Minnesota, I think Minnesota travels well when they go to other states. For sure. I mean, I thought it was kind of crazy that we were at, because it was the Coyote Creek Calling Contest. And, I mean, you're when you're there, just from Minnesota, there's some of the best goose callers in the world. You know, like right there, calling in that. And, I don't know, it's just, that was kind of cool. You know, in it my is. head, like watching that. And it's like, it well, is. there's a lot of really well-known goose callers in Rochester, Minnesota right now for the first year this contest has ever yeah. gone on. And there could be. 30 more, yeah, you know, that are just right in that caliber, you know, they just, you know, they're field callers, yeah, yeah. but, um, yeah, you got to be able to rock and roll on a goose call in Minnesota, you know, to get it done. What really got you to be like, I'm going to try to be a great goose caller, or a world champion. <sighs> um, I just loved it. I think. Yeah. I don't think there was Did like you start cause you were guiding, you were hunting and then you were guiding. So I'm assuming before this, before you started trying to win. Yeah, honestly, I was calling before I even hunted. Just in really? the garage. Okay. I had some geese fly over uh when I was feeding the calves one night. I was ten years old. Nine of them flew over, just heard their wing beats, and then they vanished off into the sunset on the back forty, just you know, drifting off. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. So that winter I just asked for a goose call and uh started practice and it was a Loman four and one uh, interchangeable choke, flute call. No idea. Yeah, yeah. Long time ago. <laughs> I still have it, and uh, just started practicing, and then got into a short read, and I couldn't start hunting until because I had nobody. To, my dad didn't hunt. My grandpa didn't hunt. Nobody in my family hunts. Yeah, like nobody. No distant relative. Nothing. They're so, all dairy farmers. So yeah, and so I went to. Uh, you know, gun safety, because you had to be 12 years old. Yep. And so I had to get that done. So, um, you know, I was calling for a good 
year, year and a half before I actually started hunting. And when, when I started hunting, you know, I just ran out with a sack of decoys and threw them on a fence line and called and stuff like that and, uh, whatnot. So, but I just, I've always loved the sound of it. Um, I think that's what kept me going. And then after transitioning from, uh, you know, a flute to a short read and just, figuring out that there was a lot of more sounds yeah. you could do the speed the whole aspect of it um you know i just loved it i just kept doing it kept doing it kept doing it and you know obviously hunting and guiding and then once i was out of high school i started getting to contest calling and that was just a thrill for me because it really just kept your goose call around all the time you know just kept practicing and you'd meet other people there you know some of my best friends are all from met at contests and stuff well, like that. Well, back then, that was the only way you knew who anyone else was Absolutely. is you'd have to go to the show. Yeah. And that's where you'd meet Tim Grounds. Yep. That's where you'd meet Fred Zank, whoever yeah. else. I Foils, mean, yeah, yeah, everybody. Yeah, you had you would have to go to a show to be able to interact with those people. There was no text messages or, you yeah. know, social Instagram, media, no yep. social media and stuff <clears throat> like that. So um, I think, I think you know, what kept me going or what got me into it or whatever was just, just a lot. I love to blow a goose call. To be honest with you, I yeah. think that's the bottom line. That's pretty cool, man. And did you take that into like anything else? I, I know that you one time had joked with me. I don't know if you were joking though about turkey calling. I know that you turkey call, but did you compete a lot in that? In turkey real? calling? Yeah. No, I competed in a, a pot calling contest. Okay. Uh, Slate yeah. over at Cabela's a long time ago. But yeah. no. I do not compete in turkey calling yeah. contest. <laughs> Scott Scott has told me, and I'm I know for sure like two or three other people. He's like, I was a world champion turkey caller. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's that's definitely not true, for sure. Turkey would be a grand national yeah. champion. No, I think they do have a world. Yeah, it don't matter. Who knows? So good. But no, I I enjoy turkey hunting, but no competition. Dude, turkey yeah, calling. I'll give you the championship turkey call right now. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Kill zero turkey. Dude, and that's all you need. That's all you need. In South Dakota, at least. You can open there up your truck you, door and kick dude, them. Dude, there you go again. I'm going to be honest. I hear so many waterfall guys be like, man, you know, it's it's cool hunting ducks, but man, if I could if I could hunt turkeys year-round, I would. Really? Um, like, I love hunting turkeys. Yeah. I love it, but I don't love it hunting more than waterfall. Yeah. You know, let's... I think I think I think people say that uh, yeah, yeah, sound yeah like, like they're not a yeah oh yeah, I'm not like, as oh, I'm not turkey, as attached turkey, to it turkey. as you sure yeah right yeah yeah a turkey um, gobble is cool but it's, yeah it's not as cool as <laughs> that is cool uh, if you had to like dream up the perfect hunt oh, for yeah. you okay oh, yeah. like you you're like literally having a dream right now oh, I already know what I want to say. Oh, like yeah. where is it what is it how are you high like what's your high like just give me the well first of all it's in Rochester yeah it's in a cornfield on some fucking geese that don't want to be there for well sure. yeah it's in Rochester it's, it's in on a cornfield okay. on chisel plowed morning or afternoon unchisel plowed are you sure about that bud it's on chisel plowed. You don't want chisel plow? I haven't hunted a chisel plowed field what? in a long time. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> I Dude, think, let him paint the fucking picture, I think picture, it's bro. been a long time. Sorry, sorry. All right, uh, paint, paint the picture for me. Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah, let's just say December 7th. State is really cold. It's locking down. It's freezing. Morning, afternoon. Uh, I'm getting there. All right. Uh, they're starting the to flush. Dark moon dark moon so they migrate yeah. during the day um 
spitting a little snow, north wind at eight miles an hour, um, high of 22, and you see your first group of migrators at 9.30. Okay. And your first group of towns coming out at 8.30. I mean, 10.30. So you have town birds coming out, going back in, and you also have migrators. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And I'm in a pit. With a heater. Yeah. 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 Big spread out. <laughs> yeah. Big spread out. Dude, I, I really want to know how you got involved with Tim. Tim Grounds, because you're from Rochester, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you're working for Tim. For how many years are you just calling for him? Like you're using just his calls and contests. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go to the shop and like help tune calls and whatever? Because that's a far trek from. It is. It is. So I got into contest calling in 2002, February of 2002. So I had a bunch of goose calls, um, you know, before, and I would call like in the, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands, um, to get goose calls. Mostly I talked to Judah on the phone, his mom, you know, and sweet lady. And, you know, I'd get goose calls and stuff like that. But, you know, I had a lot of goose calls from various call makers, but those are the ones I always kind of gravitate, gravitated to. Well, I went down to, uh, the Avery international goose calling contest and that was held at John A. Logan in Southern Illinois. And that was in January of 2002 and drove down there. And that's where that was the first contest I've ever been to not calling in it. We just went down there to check it out, see yeah. historic Southern Illinois, uh, and listen to this goose calling contest because it's something that I wanted to, I think eventually partake in, start getting into the contest. And I went down there and I mean, the who's who of goose calling, see, that contest there you had to qualify for. It was mm. a point system. So if you won a state calling contest, it was worth one point. If you won an open that paid $1,000, it was worth two points. Okay. So you needed two points, at least two points, either two state wins or an open win to get into it. So you had to qualify. So, you know, there was Tim Grounds, there was Jeff Foyles, there was, you know, Josh Newweiler, Fred Zink, Kelly Powers, Alti Lana, Ben Everybody Stoner. was there. Oh, I mean, it was the yeah. 30 best goose callers in the world. Yeah. And I went down to that and you remember, I didn't know how it was going to sound because there was no social media. I never heard these guys before. People weren't playing the world goose calling championship live on Instagram in 2001. I had no idea. You know, the only thing we had back then is if you wanted to buy a cassette tape and kind of listen to some structures. So I'd never heard Kelly Powers blow a goose call or never heard Sean Stahl or Alti Lanham or anything like that. Was your mind just fucking blown? Blown. Blown. And, um, you know, I, I would... I was a good goose caller in my right, but I went down and listened to that. It was like, wow. Yeah. You know, just the, and you know, you kind of talk about routines. Like I would come up to game fair and stuff like that a little bit, but, um, it was the first contest I ever went to. Um, and I videotaped it with my mom's cassette that she videotaped all my sports with. It was like a, you know, one of these, I was like, that. Comes you know? out of a fucking suitcase. Oh, it was gigantic. And I remember just <laughs> sitting there holding it and, you know, filming the contest. But Tim Grounds won that contest that night. Mm. And that was kind of like his retirement contest, his yeah. last signature win. The last, you know, contest that he needed to win was yeah. that one. And then he, you know, he had them all, yeah. you know. And he won. Kelly Powers was second, I don't, you know, down the list or whatever. And... 
you know, I had still never met Tim at that point. Well, fast forward one month, um, I blew in my first contest in Burlington, Iowa, which is the Mississippi Valley Calling Classic. Yeah. And rest in peace. Yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, no kidding, right? And, you know, Kelly Powers, uh, all these guys are there or whatever. And I took third place. Okay. That's sick. David Dameron, Derek Dameron won it. David was second. I was third. Uh, Kelly Powers took fourth. And I think Ben Soner was fifth. And what was crazy about that is, is if you ever looked at the old pictures, uh, Tim made a black vest. Yes. A black vest. And all these guys at the Avery International came out. You knew there was calling for Tim. They had a black vest. They had yeah. a black vest. Well, I went to Burlington. I made the last round, the final round. You know, I took third. And there was five callers. Yeah. Both the damn runs had a black vest on. Kelly and Josh had a black vest on. I just had a gray T-shirt on. So <laughs> yeah. the first thing Tim Grounds came up and told me after the contest, because, again, I had never met him in my life. He comes up to me and goes, hey, bub. We need to get you one of those black vests. <laughs> I said, that'd be pretty cool, Tim. Yeah. And then it kind of connected that way, yeah. you know, and then I used, you know, obviously his call for years and, uh, and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was how I met Tim and how it kind of all started. Sure. Now, do you feel like, so I guess you didn't really work for Tim. You just like called on his staff or whatever. Just used his calls. Yeah. So, yeah. <sighs> how do I even word this properly? Like, would you go there and hunt with them all the time? Or like, you know, back when I got to know Tim and stuff, Southern Illinois was, you know, on the, on the downswing of their hunting. Mm. You know, it wasn't like the eighties and nineties when they had them all at crab orchard and whatnot. So, but yes, I did go down there. Uh, usually some buddies went down and they still had the Avery international going on the years after that and whatnot. And I had qualified for that. So I'd go down there, do those hunts and whatnot. Um, but like you said, you know, it's nine, 10 hours from my house. I didn't, right. you know, venture down there except for when, Usually there was a contest going on or on the way to a contest yeah. or something like that. So, yeah, but spent obviously some time in his shop and around, you know, Judah and Bill and Hunter and stuff like that. And, uh, um, yeah, just, just kind of watched him work in his, his atmosphere down there. And it was, it was really cool. Do you feel like he is one of the biggest inspirations for you starting Mulkier? Or do you like what was what why, was really why the, would you, yeah why would you have started Mulkier yeah, yeah. you just want to be in the industry type of a deal well I'll tell that's that's a funny story in itself I think I think the reason why I started Mulkier was contest calling and there so we had Silver Lake in Rochester and I'd love to go down and listen to bees down there and you know when information started to come because kind of the refuge forums and everything kind yeah, of started yeah. in 2005 six and stuff like that and information people started to have cell phones then and people were communicating a little bit more and stuff was getting out there and short read goose calling um was really really moving forward well, you know yeah. what what year was this uh five two uh, 2005 and 2004-2005 I would go down to Silver Lake a lot and I would listen to these geese and I mean you could feed them out of your hand down there yeah so the sound wasn't a honk off in the distance or a cluck it was just these in your face low-end nasty slur notes um just expressions of getting in fights you know with other geese and you just start to pick up on all these notes that these geese are doing that are not being done on a goose call yet and started to practice them, learn them, stuff like that. And I went and started 
to use them in a contest. And I'll never forget the contest. It was, uh, it was over in Wisconsin, the Richfield, the sportsman's warehouse contest. And I had five pretty good judges that were judging that contest. I yeah. felt and at that time I was, like I was you doing, looked up to them or you knew well, who no, they, they were. were just good judges. They were just good goose. They knew judges. what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I was, I was doing well in contests back then. So, you know, you kind of take the temperature of the room and you're like, well, you know, based on who's here, I should easily, you know, be in the top five, top three, probably maybe for a win based on what I had done in the past, you know, it's contest calling. So anything can happen. Obviously I ended up getting cut the first round and I blew clean. Yeah. And I remember going up and like getting the notes from the judges and they're all of them. Great routine, good stuff, terrible ending. Geese don't do that. They oh. don't make those sounds. They don't make those sounds. And I was a guy that would really, really, really practice it and try to perfect it before I put it into a contest, record yeah, myself, yeah. base it on live geese, blah, blah, blah. And that's how I got these sounds is I recorded a lot of live geese. You know, I would hear these sounds and be like, okay, I need to record this so I can play, you know, play it back and whatnot. Right. And I thought my, um, you know, my what I was doing on the goose call was very, very, not exactly obviously, but very close to how the goose sounded. Yeah. And a human ear should have picked up on that sound saying, Oh, that's what he's trying to do. So did you just like jump down their throat and be like, are you serious? No, I didn't. I was, (laughs) I was just all five of them were like terrible ending, terrible ending, terrible ending. The geese don't do that sound. And I'm sitting there and I'm driving home. I'm like, no geese do that yeah and they do it a lot yeah you know and so well what noise what noise were you doing just i mean what you're doing yeah like the slides you know the hiccups the uh not so much the hiccup just the sequence of the hiccups the um um just i would have to look on the bad grammar but a lot of it was the low-end stuff um that you know, is all over in bad grammar, the CD, because that's how it started is, um, is I had all those recordings, 30, 31 hours of recordings. And I was like getting cut in contests. Cause they're like, geese don't do these sounds. And I'm like, yeah, no, they do. Them. They do that. Sound. So I made a CD and so that you could win more contests <laughs> well what? just uh, i think i think what my or to th- just or to just educate the masses. Like, I think my thought was, is that a, um, I fucking know they do the sound. <laughs> well, not so much that, but I think I think as a whole, people needed to hear them. Yeah, like geese had this whole extra language than the six basic notes, you know, and that's why we called it bad grammar. A lot of slur notes, like a flying spit note. Oh, it's um, pretty cool. You know, slides and stuff like that and whatnot. Um, and so I put it on there, and that's what started Molt Gear. Yeah, you know, I've started selling these things, and I was like, oh, I gotta you know start a business and you know, sell these things. So that's where it actually started was in contest calling. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like that, that hurt Tim's feelings or like all of the people who helped you get to where you were at that point? Do you feel like that kind of starting mulk gear and making calls? No. So I didn't, I didn't make calls until 2013, 2012. Right. right. So this was six years later. Sure. But you um, can't, well, I watched bad grammar actually after I learned how to call and I'm pissed because I had no idea who you were. Right. I just bought a rush. Sure. I just literally bought a rush and then I it loved worked. it. It was great. <laughs> it was great. And then I, I was like, I paid Nick Johnson for a goose calling lesson to learn mm-hmm. the quick spit. And I didn't know the name of the note. I right. called it a spit cluck. Sure. And he's like, yeah, here's how you do it. 55 minutes later, he's like, oh, you want to do the quick spit? I'm like, fuck. 
you know? <laughs> right. And then um, I start like hammering the goose calls, like an hour and a half a day yeah. for like a year and a half. Yeah. I was a psycho. I was like yeah. 20 some. What was I like? 23, 24, 23, 24, 23, 24. I was just a, a weirdo, you right. know, wasn't chasing girls. Here's the funny thing. Let me interject. Like Joey pre getting really serious about goose calling and then like hunting in general mm-hmm. is a very different person than the person that he became from like when he started really hunting. Again. I don't know what he's talking about right I now. Like yeah, you do. I don't. <laughs> Okay, Joe, and I'm kind of scared right now. Like no, 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 not not in a bad way, in a really good way. But like, <coughs> dude, you were party boy. Oh yeah, he yeah. was he was like party boy Scott oh, though. Like right. like I I know where the party is or where is the party? Like sure. for sure. Hey, there's Thursday, 30, Friday, there's Saturday, thirty Sunday. girls here. Let's go. Right. You know? And and then as soon as he got obsessed with goose calling and we started Midwest Flyways and he was hunting he was hunting pretty seriously for like three years before Midwest Flyways mm-hmm. again because he grew up doing it. And like it was like all of a sudden Joey was like asleep on Friday because we actually lived together mm-hmm. for a little period of time and Joey's like asleep nine p.m. Friday, like every weekend now Saturday nine really? p.m. like Joey's in his room. Nice. Yeah. And nice. it was very weird because it was abrupt because yeah. I was living with him. It was out of nowhere. It was party Joey, and then like it like we didn't talk about it. I wasn't hunting really then, mm-hmm. and Joey was just suddenly like. I'm What's funny is that's how I actually got so a lot weird. of my friends to come hunting with me for their first time. They're like, "Where, where are you? What have you, what have you been doing?" I'm like, "Well, I'm killing shit." And they're like, right. "What do you mean you're killing shit?" Right. I'm like, "Well, can we party when we do it?" <laughs> <laughs> well, that's illegal, but right. unless you have like a a thimble full of uh, whiskey and a pit blind or something, and it's 1888. Right. But right. no, it was just uh, so I didn't know about bad grammar mm-hmm. until after I learned how to goose call. And sure. I noticed in those videos, because I was like, oh, who is this guy? Oh, he makes my goose call. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then I saw you blowing at Tim Grounds mm-hmm. the entire time of bad grammar. And I was, and then I like did some digging, and I found out that you didn't even make your own calls till like five, six years later. Yeah. Why was uh, it such a long time? You know, I was using Tim's stuff. Um, and the funny thing is, when I made bad grammar the CD... Me and Tim, you know, we're obviously pretty good friends, you know, and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. You know, I was calling for him and using his calls and stuff like that. When I made the CD, I'm like, I'm not sending this to Tim because I thought it was terrible. Oh, really? You really? know, I was just never very happy with the work, you know, sure. because honestly, I recorded it off of a $8 Best Buy mic, you know. People are like, oh, yeah. how'd you start Moat Gear? $20 in a microphone? <laughs> you know, that's the bottom. That's the truth. Yeah. And so I didn't even send him one. And, um, Kelly powers, my good friend, um, runs final flight outfitters down in, um, Tennessee, union city, Tennessee. And they ordered, they ordered, they're like, send me, send me six of these, you know, because I told him I had them out. He's like, Oh, send some down. I'll order, you know, we'll see if we can sell them. Yeah. And like a day later, they're like, send us some more. So I did and whatever. Well, Tim was down there for like a contest or something they were having and picked one up and listened to it on the drive home. And he called me. He's like, Bart, what is this? I'm like, no. Oh, no. Yeah. This is going to be terrible. He's like, this is awesome. You know, he just went crazy. He's oh, like, so he's just super pumped for you. He's like, send me 800 of them. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, no. I'm like, Tim, I've, I've made like. 48 of them so far you know he's like i don't care send me a ton of them i'll sell these things everywhere you know and so from that time we were 
you know, burning the CD in house one at a time, oh my putting on the label. I was like taping <laughs> them shut. Like I was like, this is, you know, whatever to contacting a duplication company yeah. to like, I'm going to I'm not gonna, do it. I'm going to order time. a thousand of these. I got to put in how much money to get a thousand of these. What? And they're like, Fourteen hundred dollars. I was going to say, how much was it back then? Yeah, I think uh, I think. Well, obviously, if you ordered more, the price went down. Right. But I think back then there were, you know, what I was getting them for it was like a dollar twenty eight or twenty nine or something like that, and that yeah. was ready to the door, or whatever. I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I want to do this. I got to put in fourteen hundred dollars, you know. Yeah. And I had twenty dollars into the company, you know. Basically, <laughs> I'm like, oh no. So I took a gamble. I'm like, all right, I'll order them, and got them in, and um, you know, just, burning them one at a time. I like, was. yeah, maybe we send sixty, seventy. Yeah, I was, I was. Oh god. And then after that, you know, made bad grammar the DVD because everybody's like, oh, the audio is awesome, but I need a video. Yeah. I was like, okay. So I, you know, what do you do to make a video? <laughs> you go buy a four <laughs> by eight sheet of sheetrock and you draw on it and then you film in front of it. That's what we did. I filmed it in my living room and just filmed it in my living room, <laughs> filmed the geese, put some hunting clips in there that we had filmed. With and, the camera that you had, your mom's yeah, camera? Yeah. The, the suitcase? No, no, no. I had a buddy's camera that was a little more you know, a little, little more, a little more put together, yeah. but yeah, long story short. Yeah. I think I probably sold 90,000 of them. 90,000. Probably. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. Oh, because it was out from 2008 till when DVDs really died, yeah. which was 2015. Yeah, that one still carried on. I would say like 2017, 2018, it kind of, the faucet shut sure. off. It, it started to, you know, get slower, but 2008 through 2014, I mean, it was, yeah, there was a lot. Were you, like, depending on that income quite a bit, too? No, not no. at all. Uh, well, you know, it was nice, but I, I, you know, played baseball, and when I got done with baseball, I started working for uh, a fertilizing company. We'd do commercial fertilizing, big one, yeah, where I'd ride on the yeah. T3000 machines and stuff like that, and I was doing that, and I loved it because it was kind of like farming, you know, not, yeah, yeah. not like farming, but it was almost like you got to, you know, you were working the field or going back totally, and forth yep. and I love mowing lawn. It's kind of the same thing. So I was doing that. And then all of the molt gear stuff was just kind of going in, going into the side. So, yeah. um, yeah, that's how Did it that, started. So that, that job let you kind of guide in the fall and whatever. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. So at what point though, were you like, I need to make goose calls? Um, because you did the DVDs and you did mm -hmm. the CDs. Mm -hmm. Did you call it Mulkier at that point? I did, did. Okay. I did. It was Were actually called. Stuff, like, it was actually the called. The, the, the state name is the Molt Productions Company. Okay. That's yeah, what yeah. it started with. But then it was kind of like, Molt Production. Nobody, so we just called it Mulkier. Yeah. You know, and that's where it's, that's kind of how the name, whatever. But, uh, you know, I think with Goose Calls, I was always intrigued with them, you know, because, you know, like I said, nobody hunted. And what was really cool was to go back to uh, 1992 when I got that Lohman 4-in-1 interchangeable choke flute is that you could take the insert, screw off the bell, and put in different inserts, chokes. There was like that compression chamber that you put exactly, in the calls? Exactly. That's where it came from is uh, there were little like rings. They almost looked like washers. Okay. Some were open more. 
Some were closed down more. Yeah. And that always intrigued me to see how a goose call would be different by just that much of a little thing. So lengthening and shortening. So it was always an intriguing thing for me. Um, What led me to actually make goose calls is I think I had the realization that, you know, there was a, there was obviously a market out there for my stuff with, with the bad grammar and the goose society and the duck society. And I had become married at that time. Um, So starting a family and I said, you know, this is, this is kind of what I want to do. And that was just the next step, I think, in the in the whole process. Joey yeah. left us. Yeah, Joey's gone. Joey's gone. No, but I think he's getting more beer. Did you when you started it, was it like a instant success or were you like, What the fuck am I doing? In which 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 regard? <laughs> I the don't calls know. I guess like the Yeah, the calls. I mean, because obviously DVDs and CDs had done really well. They did. So we had uh Because like I actually found out what Mulkier was because Joey had the old like DVDs and CDs. Sure. And so when I first started hunting, Joey gave me a bad grammar CD. Sure. I was like, listen to this. Cause I was like learning to duck call and whatever. I didn't start hunting until I was 20. Right. So I've only been hunting for 10 years. I didn't right. grow up doing it. Nobody right. in my family hunted. You know, I grew up like you do the occasional squirrel hunt or like somebody's going deer hunting. Like it wasn't a part of really my like childhood in any way. Yep. And so I saw that I listened to that, you know, CD and then, obviously, as I became more interested in waterfowl, I figured out what it was. But Yeah. Um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of your story. No, uh, no, no. Um, my, my question was, did the goose calls do really well right Oh, away? yes, yes. Or were you like, wow, why did we well, start you doing know, goose calls? <sighs> yes and no. Yeah. Um, so we had, a, we had a market share. I would say on the DVD side of things, you know, we were in Cabela's and, um, you know, Shields and stuff like that. So, um, we had a market share as far, as far as a company as being a name with, you know, we were, we were out there where people knew who you were going into it. Yep. Um, because of the people that had the, the media content that we had created. Um, the biggest thing with the goose calling thing wasn't necessarily designing the goose call. It was really figuring out how to get goose call from point a b d d all the way out to the consumer at the end you know the ordering in the acrylic the machining uh um you know the polishing the engraving the painting the 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 tuning the boxes i remember we got boxes one time the fedex guy left them outside and they all got rained on and they destroyed all the boxes like two thousand dollars worth of boxes call boxes and they didn't refund it because they're like no you didn't tell us not to put them on the rain so there was a lot of road bumps during yeah like you know we went through several different machine shops because there's a ton of machine shops out there not all of them can finish polish or finish acrylic. Yeah. You know what I mean? That takes, mm-hmm. you know, the speed and the coolant and stuff like that. So finding a machine shop and just stuff like that, I would say was the hardest part. The overall concept of the goose call itself and the design and the bores and stuff like that, that was not, that was pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. Yeah. It was figuring out actually how to order the acrylic in and getting it all the way into somebody's hands. Yeah. Mm. You know, with a finished product. That was you know, I remember one of the first years I made goose calls, um, I would call our, you know, our acrylic supplier and call them up and be like, yeah, I was, 
you know, I need to get uh, more black acrylic, inch and a half, inch and a quarter. Oh, okay. And this was like August. And our goose calls came out, you know, whatever it was. And it was August, so it was like hunting season, blah, 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 yeah. coming and stuff like that. And we didn't understand the timing. We're like, sure. oh, we need goose calls. Well, if we order them today, we'll have them all done by tomorrow. For sure. You know, sure. that's not how it works. Yeah. We we called our uh, acrylic supply, and they're like, oh, okay, all right. Um, yeah, so once it gets in stock, we'll ship it to you. I was like, what does that mean? They're like, well, there's there's no black acrylic right now. Like, what do you mean? Where is it? And they're like, well, they're back they're back ordered on it. They 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 haven't made it and whatever. I was like, well, when is it going to be in? And this was like on a Tuesday. Yeah. I was like, is it going to be like Thursday? Is that when you're going to ship? But they're like, no. Right now they're showing eight weeks. Oh my god! And it was like August. I guess so we're that making white you, calls this that year. <laughs> takes you, you know, stuff like that. That yeah. was the that was the hard part to try to figure out, and then getting the acrylic in the time you order it, the time it ships, the time it arrives, getting the machine shop to put it in their machining lineup because you know you take material to a machine shop. It's not like wait everybody wait we got these <laughs> goose calls to make yeah, and they close sure. everything down you know yeah like you know you're in a hurry to get these goose calls and they're like all right we'll put in a schedule uh you know the mori this machine yeah i would uh i would say about three weeks you know we'll have you have your goose calls and you're like no yeah. you know so yeah. that's what was the is that the reason why my calls have taken so long that's still the reason why his calls <laughs> So right, long. right, right. They're backward yeah. eighteen Fuck months, off. dude. Yeah. So that was the that was the real trying thing of it all. Yeah, that's time. crazy. So, so yeah. for all these, so what I find so interesting about social media these days, like there's so many benefits and so many cons, right? right? So there's so many pros and so many cons. And when I was growing up, like I grew up hunting with some really badass dudes, mm -hmm. Adam and Grady, oh, yeah. Tim, great hunters. Uh, Stan Guzzi, like all these people who are just like, I didn't even realize that. Rometta guided in Rochester for Dean for a long time. Did he really? Yep. yep. So like all these people that I just knew were really good at hunting, I didn't realize that they won worlds. Like Grady yeah. and Adam both won worlds. Mm -hmm. And so like I, I grew up revering those people where I'm like, oh my God, you're like a God, you know? Mm -hmm. And now with social media, you have like access to a Scott Trine and you have access to like a Joe Hines. You have access to a field Hudnall, Kelly Powers, like all these people, you know. And what I've noticed is like at a fair like this, you'll just have people come up and talk to you. I've watched it in like years past a game fair where people would be like, Scott, what's going on? Hey, what's going on with this and whatever. And it's like you're talking to the person like you really, really know them, but you don't you obviously don't know them. And so I've just noticed like a, a weird paradigm shift of like people are really cocky nowadays. You know what I mean? Or no? <laughs> was that a question? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was like he just kind of wanted All to right. say something about social media. I think he had a tangent. Media. Do you have a tangent on social media Well, a here's bit? Let me ask bit. you this question. Right. Because this is, this is one of the questions. Here comes I, a question. This is something I wrote, All right, wrote fuck down off. for you. All so right. This is a real question. There's no statements here. I, I didn't grow up hunting with, you know, these guys. So just a question for me. Um how has hunting culture changed and like how much of that is literally just because of social media? Cause obviously there's a lot of change that has happened from when you really got into it to where it is today. And yeah. Yeah. You know, 
I think when people look at it now and the people that, you know, when you talk about social media, I think it really has to do with the life cycle of a waterfall hunter. You know, back when I started hunting, no social media, you go through it. I'm 40 years old now. Um, so my priorities on a hunt have changed. Yeah. Um, but for the, the, the 18 year old kid, the 20 year old kid, the 22 year old kid, their priorities have not changed. Okay. In waterfall hunting. Yeah. You know, you start as a waterfall hunter, you go out on your first hunt, right? Like went out on your first hunt. Then your first goal is to shoot your first bird. Yeah. And you're so, you know, obviously happy, proud of it. And then it's like, well, I want to shoot my first limit. Sure. And then, then after that happens, you have probably a 10 to 15 year streak in you where you just want to pile them up. You know, you just, you're out there to, to shoot as many birds as you can. Yeah. And I don't care who you are. Everybody goes through it. Um, you know, I would say it happens between 16, 17, 18 years old and about 33 years old, you know, that right. time frame right there. That's why the most of the guides in this country are in that time yeah, frame. Yeah. You know, they just want to kill. They yeah. just want to pile it up. And what's different with today's generation of that age level versus when I was in that age level is we didn't have a place to display it. You know, sure. we might have printed off a picture and put it in our room or we might have, you know, whatever in our, you know, now the shop. But today's generation that is in that time frame, in that cycle of their waterfalling career can display it for everybody. Sure. Well, when you display that, um, you know, for a generation that may be older that went through it, it's like, we didn't act like that when we were kids. Yeah. Well, no, you didn't have, you didn't have Instagram when you were that age. Yeah. You know, you didn't have social media. So they really get a little bit bent out of shape and they're like, oh, the culture of waterfall hunting is just, it's terrible. Yeah. It's downgrading. Oh, it's, here it's so much. Yeah. It's just, and it's like, well, it's no fault to the 20 year old kid that wants to go out and shoot a bunch of birds and post it on social media. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Right, right, right. Because right, right. I'll tell you what, when I was that age and we were just fisting them out of, you know, Hamburger Hill every <laughs> yeah. single day. Yeah. Hell mm. yeah, I would have been posting them up. Look at me, you know. And, you know, now that I'm 40, it's not that I get discouraged by people that are doing that because it was 20 years ago I was the same way. I just yeah. didn't have social media to so post it up on. I realized what I was trying to ask yeah. in my nonsense question. Yeah. You just explained it a little bit better. Do you feel that because of social media and they're tagging like a mulkier because they use your calls or whatever, they feel like they should know they that you should know who they are and the fact that you don't kind of like plays this. I feel like just kids are a lot more cocky nowadays than they ever were. Well, I think that's because they've they've interacted in some way with you. You know, whether it's a, a, a call to the shop, an email, uh, direct message or private message or whatever they call them on yeah. social media. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's always been some type of probably a reaction um, um, back and forth a little bit that may make them feel that way. You know, but they're at the same time, there's there's also kids that come up and, you know, say who they are and shake your hand and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. You know, probably yeah. introduce it what we would call an old school way. But um yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's so much communication going on these days that I think everybody feels interconnected. Uh, but the the weird thing is with today's communication, it's never face to face. 
Yeah. You know, it's always in a text. People hardly ever call, you know, it's a shoot right, of text right. and stuff yep. like that. So um, um, there's just so much, so much networking and interaction going on that, uh, you know, that guy right there, I could have sent him a long DM answering a question on Molt Gear or right, on right, something right. like that. And he just got comfortable from it. You know, mm-hmm. from the communication Felt standpoint. Like, for. Yeah, yep. yeah. It wasn't like back in, you know, I want to say back in my day, but I mean, a little literally, bit. <laughs> yeah. literally never talked right. to these guys or seen them in person. You know what I mean? You're walking up there like, a, you know, a scared puppy, you know, yeah. where today it's just so much interaction. I think they feel well, a little more comfortable. Well, and that's what I was trying to say. It's like, I would talk to these people and be like, oh my God, I don't want to fuck up. I don't want to say anything wrong. And nowadays it's not like that. You know what I mean? So right. that's why I was wondering if you thought that social media has changed that, but obviously, you know, I mean, did those old, like when you say those old guys kind of have a gripe with it, mm-hmm. they do. And sure. you know, we've heard it a hundred times. And so we're sort of, I mean, we're young, but yeah. we're not like, I'm not 18. Right. And Joey grew up hunting with a lot of these older guys too. And so, you know, a lot of like what I view in waterfall and like the way that, you know, my opinion changes with kind of anything is like anybody else from where you started from, what your surroundings were, like being taught how to hunt, whatever. And Joey taught me a lot of how to hunt and some of the stuff that I know. And so we feel like we have a little bit of a bridge to the gap between like those older guys and the younger guys mm-hmm. because his whole upbringing was hunting with those older guys and like hearing how I was they always hunting it. with someone who was 20 years older than me and sure. talking like about sure. it. Yeah. But, you know, we also get it from like the young guys perspective. And I mean, is there like a legitimate gripe there? Or did those old guys like not remember being that 20 year old kid that would have posted those photos if they could or what well, is that like to, you know, they want to be relevant. And so, you know, it's like they're too cool. You know, that's like, it, it, de- Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is there, there's a lot of people that are maybe my age that I mean, they were guides back in the day, Yeah, you know, and whether it was like, you know, like some of the people I mentioned earlier or whatever. And, you know, I think where it comes is like, uh, you know, a kid will post up like shredding, making piles and, you know, it's like, like they, uh, you know, they ended up shooting their, you know, 10, 15 geese, you know, twice a year. And the other guy on the other side's like, (laughs) we, you know, We'd pile them <laughs> up, you know, year after year after year. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think where that comes is if that older guy lets it affect him and be like, sure, you sure. don't know crap, yeah. you know, you don't yeah. know crap. But, you know, it's just a changing time. I think the waterfall industry as a whole, you know, I think it's 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 much more it's much more interactive. Um, it's much more connected. Yeah. There's so much more information out there now. I mean, back when I, going back to that again, but back, back in when the I, old days, back in the old days, like I can't imagine the information that is out there now. Yeah, in the photos and the, the 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 videos and just the stuff that's happening out there now. What that would have done back when I was yeah. trying to piece this whole thing together, yeah. you know, piece a short read together and what am I supposed to do with my decoys and stuff like that, you know? And the way I was learned was just spending those weekends guiding when mom would drop me off in Rochester, 
you know, just picking it up that way. Now, you can almost learn, you know, I mean, Anything. just just scrolling through your phone. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people will say, well, they didn't earn it, you know, or something like that. Well, yeah, that's a product of their environment. Yeah. You know, I mean, just there's that much information out there now versus when we had it, there was nothing. You know, you would wait until July to get the hunting video from that year. Yeah, you know for what sure. I mean? And for sure. And there was nothing instructional on it. It was just guy besides listening to the goose, but he didn't explain his decoy spread or where he was going or anything like that. Now everything is just so in detail. And the products that we have to use now. I mean yeah. just light, incredible. Light years oh, ahead of nineteen ninety nine. Oh yeah. man. It's crazy. You know, something that's so interesting to me is the more and more I go to these shows and hear about, you know, like kind of your story into Waterfall and, you know, even like Tim Grounds or some of these other guys. It's so funny because in the scheme of like the world, the Waterfall industry is so young. And in the sense that like waterfowling and hunting has been around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. But like the actual like industry of being a business in the waterfowl space is so fresh. I mean, you're thinking about like 60, 70 years ago, some of like the herders, you know, and like right. that, that's like kind of the very beginning, like catalog stuff or going to a sporting goods right. store. That's like, it's crazy because you look at like other industry in the United States. I mean, from pretty much anything, agriculture, food, whatever. Oh yeah. It's just hundreds and hundreds of years right. of, you know, history and, it's like well, the hunting industry three generation, generations. The, the hunting the hunting industry started before all of those. It's just that nobody made money off of it. That's right, what they did right. to survive. And that's that's right. what I mean. You that's know? what I mean. And then you know you had the market hunters in the late eighteen hundreds yep. and stuff like that. But actually making a product to sell, there was always stuff. But obviously back then it was on a regional base. That's and that's what yeah. I mean. You yeah, know, like, regional base, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, the outdoor industry is uh, in the waterfall space is, uh, yeah, there's just a lot that, of stuff. And, the, and what I mean by that is, like, if if I met someone right now and they were like, my my great-grandpa or my grandpa started herders, right? you know, I wouldn't be like, really? Like, that's a, you know, company from a long time ago. Like, that's right. so believable right? to, like, meet someone like, yeah, my grandpa started herders. And I'm like, hmm. This guy's 30. His grandpa was, you know, 95 or so. Like, that's right. not, that's not like unheard of. Right, right, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, we're literally going through maybe like the third generation, maybe or fourth of like business owners in waterfowl, like selling a lot right. of product, a right. marketable industry. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Other than the bird itself. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, because that's what it, you know, selling <clears throat> the bird, surviving off the bird. But actually, products and stuff. That's yeah, what I mean. It's very fresh. Yeah, very fresh to obviously what every you know everything else is out there. But you know, it's it's a lot older than cell phones. It kind of gets me excited because like, <laughs> <laughs> no shit. It kind of gets me excited because like hearing stories about like, you know, the guys that have started some of these companies that are so like normal to us to hear now as a young waterfall hunter or whatever. Um, like knowing those people. It's pretty cool to think about now the guys that I know they're like 18, 20 that have a super hard drive for it. And like, I'm so interested to see what some of, you know, these young guys do. Well, think and like, about we're young, like I, I want to do cool things in it, you know? And right. I think the opportunity is open. And that goes back to my point of like, this is like three generations away of, right. we're just getting into what the cool stuff is. We well, have you probably. seen the Mossy Oak posts of like 
three generations of Mossy Oak where yeah. like the old grandpa's like ninety some and he still kills a turkey with Foxy. his son. Foxy. Yeah. yeah. If he kills a kills a turkey with his son and his grandson. Mm-hmm. And like that's a very small like it's a bigger company, but like you can still see the roots of that company right now. Like he's well, the like Genesis. Mossy Oak was started in nineteen eighty six. Yeah. Yeah, I was born in eighty one. Yeah. You know, so And that's that's a great telling thing. Yeah. You know, about like how yeah. young yeah, hunting the camouflage yeah. and stuff like that. It's and, insane. Uh, you know, guys would just, yeah, wear a f- flat color or, you know, army fatigues or something yeah. like that. But, yeah, as a whole, but I'll also say this, it is, it is, uh, it's matured very quickly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, back from, you think 1984 was the first Bigfoot, you know. That's fucking nuts. It's so only crazy. 1984? Yeah, 1984. Well, what'd you say, Masio? We started 86? 86. 86, dude. Yeah. Yeah, 1986. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. So, so Scott, when I was uh, learning how to, sorry, to just like jump tangents, but mm-hmm. I really want to, we're already at an hour and 20. But um, when I was starting to learn how to duck and goose call, I was asking my dad, and he's not the best caller. He just He's just the guy that knows when to do it. Sure. You know, which is really a great skill to have, obviously. And I think he's just spent enough hours in the field. But then also he learned from Pete Adam Grady, you know, like he owned a guide service, but he was not the main guy, you know, he just did it to pay for the lodge in La Quiparle. And so, um, what he told me after he got so sick of me hearing me duck call at like 10, 12, 13, 14, he's like, you know what? I'm just going to drive you to this pond in golden Valley. And you're going to go listen to the ducks and geese. And he'd, give me two calls and he'd just leave me there for an hour and then he'd come back and grab me. And so would you say that's like the best, what would you say is the best way for someone to learn how to call period? Just because you're one of the best callers in my opinion. Like I've heard you, I've hunted with you where like the first staff hunt I got invited on, you're not calling at all, all day. And we have 15 unbelievable goose callers all from your staff on, on the, on the hunt. And you picked up your call after you saw this one goose. And I heard you do a cluck starting from the low end of the scale all the way up and all the way down. And it was like under three seconds. And I bet you you blew about 32 clucks. <laughs> and I was just like floored. And you're like, Joey, Joey, pick up your crawl. Pick up your crawl. And I'm like, why? <laughs> what the fuck am I going to do? Yeah. Right. You know, so like what is like, how does someone get to your level eventually? You know, like what's the best way? Because what I tell people is like, go listen to it. Like, go listen to the birds and try to mimic it. Yeah. So, like, coming from your position, what do you think it is? You know, I think it's a combination of both. Um, You know, telling somebody that has never goose called or is lightly into goose calling, uh, you know, go out and listen to birds and just mimic that. It's going to take a long time. Well, that's a a lot of work. That's going to take... And they're going to lose interest very quickly. There's another big point about it is, you know... I mean, for case in point, we'll, we'll we'll ship a guy out a goose call. He'll get the goose call. He'll call us and be like, yeah, um, I know I'm kind of new to goose calling, but this goose call doesn't sound like how you do in the videos. Well, that's that's 29 <laughs> yeah. years of work, you know? So right. there, 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 there has to be in today's generation is the I want it now, you know, the Amazon type right. of um, – Walmart same day mentality where I want it now. So, you know, to really get people into waterfall hunting or into calling 
to uh, get specific about your question is, is that there is information out there now and it's right at the palm of your hands. Now, is there some bad stuff? Is there some good stuff? Absolutely. But um, the information is there for them, yeah. you know, to get into it. Obviously, the guy that wants to take it to the next level is going to go out and listen to birds. Yeah. You know, or he should. Um, and, you know, now it's just YouTube goose sounds. Yeah, right. You got right. hours of live geese. Mm-hmm. You know, I would go down and record it at Silver Lake. Yeah. And now it's right there. It, it's right YouTube's there. probably got 300 hours of Canada geese calling, yeah. you know, or whatever. Yeah. So, but the point is back to your question is what is the best thing to do now for a new goose call or whatever is it, it's all out there and you got to have the fundamentals right. See, that's what people don't want to put the time into. Yeah. You know, they think if they, if they buy a good goose call and they listen to the video, that's it. That should do it for me. Yeah. You know, but obviously your hands, your mouth position, the air presentation, your tongue, all that has to be correctly. But that information is out there. And that's where it's going to keep them interested enough moving along. But if, Because if you tell today's 14-year-old kid to, here's a goose call, go down to the park and listen to him and figure it out. <laughs> I'm going to get fucking kidnapped at the park. Well, so, <laughs> well maybe well, not kidnapped, yeah. but you can almost bet how long that person's going to be interested. For sure. Alone by himself <laughs> in a fucking park. Right. You know what he's going to do when he gets to the park? <laughs> he's going to sit on his exactly, fucking Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So imagine? It's, what did it's, you do on Saturday? Yeah, my mom dropped me off at, off the at park. Silver Lake. What did you do? I had a buddy pick me up? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, took one of those lift bikes, yeah, charge off of solar panels, and rode Some it around. Fucking weird guy Chipotle. asked me if I wanted to go to the fucking McDonald's. Went with to Chipotle, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's yeah. with today's goose hunters yeah, or yeah. goose callers. I think you got to drive them to the information that's at the palm of their hand. Yeah. To get them into the sport, and hopefully, when they get into the sport, they see the reaction. From the bird itself, they start to put birds on the ground. Then they start to invest real time into it. You know, the stuff that we're making um, with the instructionals and stuff like this, this is a, this is a, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a quick ride, you know, a quick ride to get somewhere fast, but hopefully the result they get from that allows them or leads them to invest real time into it. Yeah. You know, become lifetime waterfall hunters, invest into going down to a park, spending a Saturday afternoon listening to birds, honing their skills, because that's what makes lifelong waterfall hunters. If they feel that they can invest their time into it, outside of the waterfall season. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that, Oh yeah, it's hunting season. I'll buy a, license or whatever but to keep the industry moving forward to keep the innovation to keep the calling the sounds this next generation has to invest time outside of the waterfall season it's gotta be a lifestyle exactly and i i mean personally um i've seen i would i would believe a plat not a plateau but a but a a flattening uh, from this generation of pushing forward with stuff I think the social media aspect, the pictures, 
the video mm-hmm. has pushed way forward. Yeah, but well, it, when it's it, incredible, man. Incredible, but when it actually comes to um, the calling side of things, when it actually innovation, innovation, I think yeah. this 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 generation that's coming, you know. I don't think the push is there. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, it's something cool to do during, during hunting season. But right. I think there's, you know. So hopefully yeah. it allows them to vest their time outside of it. I think one part that's really interesting about that is um, I think that we see that kind of through multiple industries, though. Not, not mm-hmm. multiple, probably a lot of industries. Um, like there's a generation of being a carpenter. There's a generation of older carpenters now that like their understanding of how to get from A to B in terms of making something look right, making something look good, you know, they they were never there to like show off. There weren't like awards that a contractor would win right. back in the day, you know, we're like get the job done so I get can feed my family. Yeah, exactly, right. man. You need a kitchen, I'll put that shit in. Yeah. You know, you knew how to do it. And their craftsmanship was the thing that they took pride in. Right. You know, so like it was word of mouth, it was you saw it in person. It wasn't like in a magazine, you know, winning right. awards nationally or like yeah. getting written about or people doing videos from a tour right. of the house and everyone on social media seeing photos of it. It was like you go to, you know, Johnny's house and he just had Jimmy do a new kitchen for him and you see like some ornate trim work and you're like, Jesus Christ, right. you know, Jimmy's a real Christ. craftsman. Yeah. And so it's the same thing now that's happening. You know, it's a business it's about how much money you can make oh, rather fast. than a lifestyle or like, you know, I'm a carpenter and right. I do ornate crazy work or pushing right. the envelope of your craft. Right. Now it's just like, who can I, you know, because now they say too, best marketing wins. <sighs> and that is true, man. Like it, whether anyone likes it or not, there has to be a certain level of quality. I think, I think, I think, I think best marketing wins for a day. Best, best mar- product wins for a year. That's my take on that. Yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah. you have to have a reasonably good product, no matter what. Yeah. To be in the right. conversation. Right. But there are many products or things in this country that are an inferior product to something else, but they don't have the marketing. You yeah. know, you look at like camouflage clothing, even even that, just like through deep dives of my own, like if you read reviews or see like a, like sleeping Indian wool camo wear, if you, are you familiar with that at all? No idea. Okay, so like... And that's, this is actually, this is, this is a good Cal. point. Cal, you know it's I mean? not Philson. He doesn't know. This it. is a good point. So like, <laughs> it's like an American made sleeping Indian is like a, an American made wool company that they make like camouflage clothing for hunters. Yeah. And like a lot of big game hunters really swear by it. And that's where I've read about it is on like the forums and stuff. Okay. But like, you would never know who they are. But yeah. if they had like the marketing budget of Under Armour, they'd probably outsell Under Armour every year. But you right. don't know who the hell that is. Yo, thanks for listening to the Midwest Flyways podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Migra Ammunitions, the next-gen proven and patented technology in shot shell ammunitions, small batch manufacturing, which means they can actually quality check what they're actually putting out to you guys, tighter patterns. Migra Ammunitions does hit different. Trust us and try it today. Go to MigraAmmunitions.com to learn more. Dude, one, one of the questions that I really wanted to ask you because I feel like you you are still tied in with the younger generation. You obviously have had a lot of ties with an older generation. But if you were giving advice to somebody that was just starting out and wanted to be a great waterfowl hunter, what is like the key or what is the one piece of advice you'd give? Don't hunt Rochester. 
Oops. Okay. <laughs> Stay out of my shit. No. <laughs> no. Um. Boy, that's a you know that's a really good question. You know what's what's the key advice? I think that right there, the answer comes from the goose. Um, they they just tell you so much. You just gotta stop and watch it. They'll give you all the answers. It's right there in front of you. You know, wind conditions, how they approach a field, their flights, what they do on different weather. You know, the big thing that I would say is if. A guy likes waterfall hunting. He's getting into waterfall hunting is, and I, I, I don't know when this happened or when it kind of does happen, but take into account what happens, I think is the biggest thing. What happened? You know, not just did we shoot geese, did we not shoot geese, but what was all the variables that were actually present on that day. That's a really good point. Yeah. It's uh, a, it's actually Yeah, like yeah. like weather, wind. Um, you know, if guys are cruising down a road and they're scouting geese and you know, right now it's it's just a race to find the geese and blah blah blah, all that whatever. But how does the wind change their flight? You know, does it push them south? Does it push them north? How do they approach a field? Uh, what do they do on windy days? What are they doing on sunny days? Cloudy days? Temperature? You know, um, you know, down in Rochester, when it gets below freezing, you know, what time are they going to fly if it's cloudy and they actually fly? You know, based on temperature, you can you can be within 10 minutes on that day. Wow. You know, just over time of yeah. actually recognizing what's happening do you well, like that, keep a journal or anything like do you write about like no. weather patterns or it's well, just in your head just in my head i know yeah. what i was gonna say is that first staff hunt that cujo almost took your head off oh yeah um you didn't come out that day until two in the afternoon and that and, was early and everyone everyone <laughs> on your staff was like where's scott where's scott where's right. scott and i'm like he knows something that we don't if Scott's not here, we're not going to kill a goose. Yeah, if you guys so were we just smash, he would have been up there. So in the we morning. just like kicked back, and you're like, "Hey guys, I'm rolling up." I think it was like two thirty, and everyone's like, "Oh great, now yeah, we're going to kill geese now because he's such a good caller and whatever." And then like forty five <laughs> no, minutes later, like and then forty five minutes later, geese started flying. So like, what is that? Just you knowing Rochester? Yeah. Or is that just? Yeah, I mean, yeah. would you just have like a? A magic horseshoe no because it's different everywhere like yeah um, yeah like it's all based on pressure how much area the pressure gets versus when they fly like you know years ago we went out to western nebraska and it was negative 17 with fresh snow and clear and sunny that's what the weather forecast was for the next day yeah if we had that in rochester it's like okay you start adding that up 315 flight in the afternoon yeah so i Said the guy, hey, what time What time are we going to roll out tomorrow? And I almost said tomorrow afternoon. He's like, oh, they'll be in the air by 8 o'clock. <laughs> what? It's negative 16. They're not going to be flying at yeah. 8 o'clock. He's like, oh, no, by 8.30 for sure. I'm like, come on, man. And there was no way because the whole time out there, he was like, these geese are different. These geese are hard, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the weather hit right, blah, blah. They were in the air by eight fifteen. Is this the uh, the angel wing videos? Uh, Is this with angel wing? That was Ethan one of the trip, but but other times, you know, wherever yeah, we go, yeah. it's like like last year I was down in Kansas. I was duck hunting, but it was warmer. 
It was sunny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was geese <laughs> flying over our head all morning going out to feed. And I go, what are they doing? And Nickham's like, what do you mean? They're going out to feed. I'm like, it's like 55 degrees and sunny. And your geese are flying out to feed. Are you kidding me? We wouldn't see these geese in two weeks. Yeah. And yours are going out to feed. He's like, what do you mean? They go out to feed every morning. Case in point. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah. you know, it's different, but, but learn your area. You know, geese have a very, I mean, the, the, the more you realize it, the more you'll realize they're, they're, they're like clockwork almost, you know, what time in a realm. Yes. It's getting pushed back every year, but within a week, they're going to probably show up in your town. The numbers yeah. are peak migration. Um, when they get there, what do they do? Chances are they're, they're going to be in that same realm of area every single year within four or five days. Yeah. Do you, you know? feel like it's more calendar migration or weather migration with geese? Weather. But that weather, weather tends to happen on right, the calendar. In, right, in right in that, that calendar. calendar. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because it was based around, a lot of it was based around the full moons. Um, um, in the calendar, you know, I remember always Tim saying to me, September 23rd, Southern Illinois was a migration day. September 23rd, we would get our first geese coming down. He always said that. Rochester, we always had a ton of geese by Halloween. You know, they would just, it was where they needed to be. Um, and, you know, right around 2000, 2001, that really got killed by the El Nino year. Yep. I think that, yeah. I, I, I think migrations north to south for canada geese were changing slightly yeah but that year really made a change fucking killed it yeah because a goose sat and sat and sat and was like well i just went the whole winter and i i didn't go the extra 400 miles i (laughs) normally do and i'm still alive yeah and he's like, we're going to do this again next year. For sure. <laughs> yeah, and sure. that's where it started. I mean, I remember hunting on Thanksgiving in a, in a t-shirt that year, yeah. 2001, the El Nino year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that changed a lot. And it also, that was the year they stopped flying out in the sun. It was so warm. They're like, what am I going to do when it's so fucking hot? I'm not going to fly out to a field and feed. Yeah. I'm just going to sit here and eat grass. For sure. Yeah. That's when they stopped flying in the sun. Yeah. Back home. And I think that year just fucked up a lot of things. Yeah, it's so it crazy. Just did. It just messed up a lot of things with the migration north to south and then their daily movements as well. Yeah. yeah. Having hunted in like so many different places, can you tell us a crazy hunting story? And when we say that, we're looking for like the weird and the, you know, like the kind of unorthodox. I want maybe. an owl. I want an owl story. Yeah. I want like you an know? encounter, like something crazy that you saw or, you know, anything weird. Pe- people getting guns pointed at them, anything like that. I mean, I know that you've crushed a lot of geese. So like I've, oh. I've told several stories of me shitting myself or. Well, I mean, the craziest things happened down when, when Tim was around down at his place. <laughs> I mean, he's just a wild man. Yeah. He's a wild man. I remember down there. And this is this is after Yeah, I got a couple of them and they all happened to be at Tim's place. Let's go. And I remember at the Avery International. So he won the previous year. So he was done call, you know, it's kind of he retired. You know, that was the last hurrah. And uh 
I remember the next morning, so they had a banquet at night and then a supper, and these guys would come in from all over the country and donate. The money would go towards conservation, but what these hunters would get to do is hunt with one of our one of the callers at a club down there in Rochester. Well, these clubs are, you know, 40, 100-acre fields. Well, they have five different pits in a 40-acre field. Everybody's yeah, yeah, yeah. 200 yards oh, away. Yeah, and yes. so, you know, there was like me, Kelly, uh, you know, Alti, um, we're hunting at Tim's place and these hunters were there. Well, we were all sitting there and everybody was there. We were supposed to meet at like five 30 in the morning. It was like six o'clock and Tim wasn't there. So we we're kind of all just <laughs> sitting in the parking lot. Couldn't get into the lodge or didn't really know what to do. Tim wasn't there. And all of a sudden we hear this big diesel coming down grassy oh, yeah. road. And I mean, he's flying, he's flying and he pulls into his parking lot he just slams on the brakes, come in like 50 miles an hour. He gets out. He walks around the back of his truck. He had a pair of, were they the muck? They were the short muck boots because muck boots had just kind of started getting a little popular or whatever. Yeah. He had a pair of muck boots on. He had a nat gear pullover and a pair of underwear on. Underwear. Yeah. Underwear. Underwear. <laughs> Six o'clock in the morning. He gets out smoking a cigarette. Hairs everywhere. He goes, listen, I've had four <laughs> pots of coffee, three Xanax, and shit my pants twice. Here's what we're going to do. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. I just died laughing. Died laughing. And... uh <laughs> You know, the next year after we got to know Tim, we went down there for, we went down there for uh, one of our buddies' weddings. That got he was from Southern Illinois. A lot of some Southern Illinois guys would come up to Rochester and guide. Yeah, and uh, we went down there for his wedding, and we went down there a couple of days in advance, and we were going to hunt at Tim's place. And it was me, Dean Tlugan, Al Penheider, and Kyle Holbrook, and. We went to the Copper Dragon that's in uh, Carbondale. It's around their college there, Southern sure. Illinois University. And, uh, I mean, we just got tore up. Ripped it was up. after our goose season. It was like early January. Yeah. I mean, it's like a three-story college bar. We're a little older. Al, you know, I mean, Dean, we're all just partying. Just really, really. Tying one Tearing up, up the town. Tearing up. You know, goose season's yeah, yeah. over for us. Yeah. So we go out to Tim's the next morning, and I mean, we're we're hung over. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and down there they have steel pits. They have steel pits. Oh, that's a lot of reverberation. Oh. That's not good. So, dude. anyways, <laughs> Tim's setting up the field, you know, and this is after Southern Illinois was Southern Illinois. Yeah. So we get in the pit. <laughs> I didn't even get my gun on my case. They have a big couch in there. <laughs> Dean didn't. Kyle Holbrook just sets his gun, puts a shell in it. Al's, I mean, we are just <laughs> passed out on this couch in this steel pit. Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. Every once in a while, you know, they have walkie talkies down there. You know, radios. They control the whole field. You know, you shoot, you shoot, you do this, you do that. Blah, blah, blah. Well, guys were like, hey, a couple, couple ruddy ducks coming over pit wine you know, or whatever, you know, it was. <laughs> and uh, whatever. And all of a sudden, Four geese coming out of the slough. Four geese coming out of the slough. And the intensity of the thing, and we're just, 
Uh, whatever. <laughs> just geese, trying you know, to live. We just got done shooting 2,000 geese. You know, yeah. we don't need to whatever. And these four geese are flying around, flying around. And uh, we were in we were in a pit called the G-Spot that oh. day. Okay. He, ha- he okay. had the black hole, the Cadillac, the hill, and the G-Spot. Dope. Yes. That's what the pit's name. So we were in the G-Spot. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you hear him, coming over the G-Spot low. We need to cut him now. Cut him, G-Spot. Cut him. <laughs> cut him. And he's just yelling on the microphone, and we're just <laughs> passed out. <laughs> and I'll never forget Dean going, what fucking pit are we in? <laughs> <laughs> and Kyle, Kyle Holbrook goes, I think we're in the G spot. And he leaned forward and didn't get his muzzle out of the pit. It was pointed in a safe direction, but just goes, boom. <laughs> well, the steel pits. And I mean, I'm like, oh, and I just... I fall backwards. I look over at Dean. <laughs> Dean's doing a head shake. He's like, no, no, that didn't happen. I look over at Al. Al is against the wall doing this, turns over and just starts dry heaving and throwing up. And we're in this pit. Obviously, we didn't shoot a goose. We just scared him. And then you hear, what the fuck is going on in the G spot? What the hell? And I mean, we're just so. I mean, we were just we were in rough shape. We dude. shouldn't have our guns closed. So, you know, as far as as far as you know, hunting stories and uh, something out. Those are two the down at Tim's that I'll that I'll you know Never obviously forget. remember. You know, and you know little things in Rochester here and there. But it was always a hoot to go down there because those guys were uh, those guys were pretty funny. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I love it. Um, I I think we're gonna have to do another one of these because I have like yeah. a bunch of information questions for you that oh, sure. definitely didn't get to ask. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, I'd love it, dude. I had a thank you for finally coming on after three years. Hopefully, it's not another three years. Could be, could be. I'm yeah. a planner. No promise. I'm a planner. No, you're yeah. not. I'm a terrible. No, what you planner. should be right <laughs> now. You're a planner in, hey, in classic Scott fashion. Just tell us it'll be really soon. It'll be really soon. Hey, yeah. Scott, Good. when are my calls going to get done? Really, really soon. soon. Really soon. Yeah. yeah, we're working on it. Dude, it all depends on what your definition of soon is. <laughs> yeah. A lot of time passes in this yeah. life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that was fun. Heck yeah. Thanks, man. We appreciate you for coming on. Uh, everyone can find Scott, obviously, at Mulkier. Uh, he doesn't post very much. Um, doesn't really care about that. But Which one is? Uh, oh, yeah, this is our closeout music. I like it. Here's the thing, it. man. You is can't be mad. Yeah. yeah. You can't be mad listening to this. Spanish? Is that the proper? Just the- Latino. That's- okay, Latino. Latino. Latin music. Yeah. How about that? El Camellón. Dude, it's... Uh, I had a really bad day one day, like a like a catastrophic meltdown day, and then I found this song again, and I was just like, it literally brightened up my day, where I wasn't in a bad mood Easy anymore. to please Joey. Yeah. Ask my Scott's wife. Scott's like, fucking this music, dude. No, Ask my hey. wife, Scott. You know? <laughs> Make sure you guys follow us and everything else. Uh, see you soon. One more thing. 